Our scripture reading for today is from John 3, 1 through 15. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their, into their mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. This is the word of God. Well, good morning. I'm Jonathan. I get to lead uh, as a pastor of this church. Welcome to each of you. Uh, maybe you have been here before. Maybe today happens to be your first Sunday. We are a church with a vision for folks to come in who feel comfortable with Christianity, but also people who feel uncomfortable with Christianity, to be able to come and ask questions. Maybe you grew up in a tradition that did not allow you to voice your concerns, your doubts, and your questions. We believe that these are some of the most important questions you could have about reality and about God and about the person of Jesus. And so we're glad you're here, especially if you're skeptical outside of Christianity and you're coming to find some answers to some of the best questions. We hope that today will assist you in that as we go into the life, the person, the work of Jesus. We're in a series that we have entitled, That You May Believe. We're in John chapter 3, which if you have never read that chapter before, is really chocked full with a lot of confusion. And so I'm going to do my best to unconfuse you, but it's not a simple passage. And actually, I think in some ways that's a good thing, right? Because the mystery of Christianity is an important thing to wrestle with. We don't want to water it down and make it seem as if the human mind can grapple with any and every aspect of understanding the divine. The reality is we can't. And this chapter in particular is chocked full of mystery. When he's talking about the spirit blows like the wind, being uh, resurrected with this sense of inner renewal that comes from the water and the spirit, that you have to be born again. All of these unique concepts within Christianity, some of them that you resonate with, some of them that you might find abrasive, things that you want to actually avoid. We're going to try to go into some of those concepts because they're important to Jesus. We have put cultural definitions on so many of them, and so we'll try to unpack a bit of that here in John chapter 3. I'm excited to be in source material when it comes to Jesus. He has so many caricatures, doesn't he? When you think about the person, the work, the life, Time Magazine always comes out with something around Easter. There are other magazines and publications, some of them using scripture, some of them not. Some of them using tradition, but in the Christian tradition and in our church, we go back to four places that record the life, the person, the work, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Those are the books Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
If you're new to Christianity, I encourage you to be reading along with us as we dive into this book. This is going to take you to who he was, what he said. We're in the first half in this series that's going to take us right before Christmas. And so we want to go to direct source material and in so many ways ask the question that I think Nicodemus was asking in his own way, does something that happened in first century Middle East actually matter to us here in the 21st century American West? In his own way, that's what Nicodemus wanted the answer to. And I think maybe if you're here, you do too. This section of John's gospel delves into this theme of the new birth. And of course, if you have been around Christianity for any amount of time, or if you've been kind of culturally savvy, culturally aware, you realize that the term born-again Christian is something that you either may resonate with or want to kind of run from. We want to acknowledge that. Even people who would call themselves a Christian, been in the church a long time, when they hear the phrase born-again Christian, realize that it carries so much cultural baggage that even somebody says, I am a follower of Jesus, but I would deny the fact that I'm in the category, however we're going to define that culturally, of being a quote-unquote born-again Christian. What comes to mind for you when you think about that phrase, when you think about that term? Maybe it's strangely zealous people with strange and outdated, largely ethical traditions, folks who must have needed a radical turnaround in their lives for various reasons. For many people, both inside and outside of Christianity, this phrase, born again, carries connotations far further along than what we actually find in John chapter 3. There's a writer by the name of Matt Barrett. Here's what he says. He says, being called a born-again Christian can mean many things to many people. For some, it means you are a Bible-thumping fundamentalist or a political conservative. For others, it means you were converted at a Billy Graham crusade. Countless stereotypes have created endless confusion. In fact, I recently heard somebody say, I'm going to try to quote it the best I can. They said that the biggest problem with born-again Christians is that they're actually so much worse the second time around. And it hurts because there's some truth to that, isn't there? That Christians and Christianity has a weird, strange, unique cultural reputation because of some of the misgivings, because of the fact that oftentimes Christianity has been put into a certain category, as you heard quoted by Matt Barrett. So let's see if we can break that down a bit and see what relevance it has and untangle it from our current cultural moment because in so many ways, John 3 is at the heart of the mission and purpose of Jesus. So three things if you're a note taker. Number one, we're going to look at this concept of the new birth. Number one, what it is and by implication what it's not. Number two, who's the new birth for? And number three, we'll look at how it happens. So what it is, who it's for, and how it happens under this idea of the new birth. Look again at verse one with me. Verse one says, now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, he came to Jesus at night and said, <clears throat> Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you were doing if God were not with him. Let me stop there. Nicodemus approaches Jesus at night. Maybe he had a long day at the office. He needed to help his wife get the kids down, and he couldn't get to Jesus until later in the evening. But most likely the reason that the term night And darkness is included is because he wants to keep his association and his interest in Jesus under wraps and in the darkness. He comes at night. He's a very respected individual. I'm going to get more to that in point two. 
But he comes in the evening to have a conversation with Jesus in the shadows. In verse 2, if you glance at it, it tells us that Nicodemus has been watching Jesus. He's with a group of others who have been studying him, and they have some questions. And so maybe Nicodemus has been sent as an ambassador to get some answers to those questions. But the reality is, as you see through the course of this conversation that Nicodemus has, he is confused about Jesus about who he really is and what he's really up to, what he is doing. And in his initial address to Jesus, you can sense that he's trying to make sense of Jesus. Look again. He says, Rabbi, he addresses him respectfully. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We know, so not just him. We, the group of people that I'm associated with, we know that you're a teacher. We know that you've come from God. For no one could perform the signs that you are doing unless God were with him, if God were not with him. In other words, he says, we've seen what you're doing. We don't have an answer for it. This doesn't really make sense to us. You're from Nazareth. You're a carpenter. you got a group of 12 who are following you around. But you're doing some pretty phenomenal things. We have given the evaluation that you're at least a teacher. You're a rabbi. You have been sent from God because we can see the signs. Remember, this is the book of signs. First half of John is talking about the signs, the clues of Jesus. We have seen the signs that you were doing, and nobody could do these unless God was with him. Now, let me simply say this. It's not a bad statement, certainly not a malicious statement, but it's absolutely an incomplete statement. And Jesus, who doesn't cater to anybody's flattery, he goes right to the heart of the issue when Jesus says, you've seen the signs. Very truly, his response, this is important, very truly, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. It's this play on seeing. He goes, we know you're a rabbi. I don't really know who you are and what you're about. I'm here to get some more information. We have seen what you're doing. Jesus goes, oh, you've seen? Nobody can actually see unless they have been born again. And in verse 4, Nicodemus is immediately wrestling wrestling with Jesus' statement. And some have assumed that he is really wrestling with the literality, I don't know if that's a real word, the literal nature of what Jesus has just said to him, that you have to be born again. And he's sitting there going, scratching his head and saying to himself, no, that doesn't make sense. How in in the world could an adult enter enter back into the womb of the mother? This does not make sense. But let's give him more credit. He is one of Israel's great teachers. The assumption that most scholars have said, well, he could be taking it literally, and that would be a little confusing. But really what he's saying is he understands what Jesus is after, that Jesus is talking about complete inner renewal, not turning over a new leaf, but having a completely new starting point, a new interior, a new heart. And he's saying to himself, Jesus, I'm a teacher of Israel. We've been teaching your way for a long time. It's almost impossible to see a life changed. How can that actually happen? What he's really saying is it's almost as impossible as an adult man or adult woman entering back into the womb of their mother for the second time. When Jesus talks about being born again, he is not in any way talking about something that you have to do. He is talking about something that you have to become. So he's not talking about anything that you have to achieve. He is talking about something that you have to receive. And this thing, whatever it really is, is the prerequisite for seeing. If you're glancing at the text, that's verse 3. And it's the prerequisite for entering the kingdom of God, verse 5. So what is it? 
There's a good reason that I think this great teacher of Israel is confused, even though Jesus, in verse 10, actually alludes to the fact that he shouldn't be confused. We'll get there in a moment as well. There's a commentator, his name is Josh Moody. He writes, what Jesus is talking about is something entirely different from the normal way of living and from any other religious program. Jesus is operating in a different zone, proposing a different solution, and talking about a different approach than religion typically does. Nicodemus is scratching his head and wondering how being reborn is feasible. So what if Jesus is talking about, if what he is talking about is something entirely different, what is entirely normal? Let's ask that question. Here's how John Calvin writes it, the great reformer. He says, by the term born again, Jesus means not the amendment of a part, but the renewal of the whole character. And see, when it comes to morality, when it comes to religion, normalcy is fueled by amendment, by resolution, and by resolve. Willpower is at the heart of religion. The story of religion looks a lot like this. Here's an individual who's got a moderately well-adjusted life. They have a good job. They've got a good education. They realize something is missing. Something begins to hit them in the heart and in the soul at some point in their life. And it could be just reflection upon their past, the personality that they've been given, the personality that's been shaped by the family that they've been given, life circumstances, difficult things come at them. And so they start to think about the world differently. Maybe it's a tremendous disappointment. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Whatever it is, you realize that there's something missing and that potentially religion can fill the gap. And so this well-adjusted person begins to shift over here into this part of their world, this part of their life. They begin to adopt new traditions, new experiences, new ways of thinking, new things that they go and do on the weekends. And it feels very religious and it feels very fulfilling. But in a sense, all they have done is transferred all of this longing, angst, and hope from something that was outside of God to this new realm where God is now present. And what I'm responsible for is the amendment. i got to change something in my life. I've got to put the right information into my head, into my heart. I'm the one taking these steps. I'm the one taking these changes, making these changes in my own life. Does that sound at all like your perspective on Christianity or religion? What we're doing here? that I am amending and I am resolving and I'm using my willpower to change my life? Is Christianity anti-willpower? In no way. But is that what Jesus is describing when he talks about the new birth? In no way. See, what many of us lean into is maybe what we call addition-based spirituality. We work with an additive mentality. I'll address the Christians for a moment in the room. We assume that Jesus has done something for us. We've been around the narrative. Maybe you went to Sunday school as a kid. You understand the cross. You understand the crucifixion and the resurrection. But in the functionality of your day-to-day, you do not lean into that for a sense of renewal, for life, for meaning, and for purpose. You lean into other things. It's an additive perspective on spirituality. Yes, Jesus is who he says he is. Yes, I appreciate what he's done. Yes, he's quote-unquote the savior of the world. But in reality, I'm the savior of my world. I'm fixing things. I'm moving things forward. This is not what he's describing in John chapter 3. It's not an addition-based spirituality. Think for a moment about who Nicodemus is. Nicodemus must have been thinking, Jesus, man, I am moving forward. In fact, I've arrived. 
I've committed my life to morality. I've committed my life to the law. I am zealous for it. I am moving this thing forward. I'm here standing here in front of you. You're probably younger. Jesus is younger than him. I'm coming respectfully to this outsider. You're not part of the inside crew. You're not part of the 70. You're not part of the Sanhedrin. I'm here at night. I got some questions to ask. You've obviously, you're obviously intelligent and brilliant. You can do miraculous things. Point me in the right direction. What you're essentially telling me is go back to the starting point. You've got to be born again. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, man, you are so close. Just take one step to the left, one step to the right, and you'll arrive. That's not his perspective. Because you've got to start from the very beginning. Here's how C.S. Lewis put it. For mere improvement is not redemption. Though redemption always improves people even here and now and will in the end improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. God became man to turn creatures into sons, not simply to produce better men of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of man. It is not like teaching a horse to jump better and better, but like turning a horse into a winged creature. Beautiful. He's after something different, not an additive-based spirituality, a little Jesus, a little me, a lot of me, a little Jesus, something radically new and different. The new birth, what it is, and by implication, what it's not. Part two, who it's for. Let's go down into who Nicodemus really is. Let me read a couple of things for you from the dictionary of biblical imagery. I wasn't going to tell you where that's from because you're going to tune out. I said dictionary. But listen, this is who the Pharisees were. They were model citizens of Israel, accepted leaders simply by virtue of their zeal for the law. They were fervently loyal to God, zealous for knowledge of Scripture, and respected as the authority even by those who disagreed with them. Their concern for keeping of the law, for the sanctity of the temple, for the purity of Israel, and for the full Israelite claim on the land of Israel were fired by prophetic promise and charged with political implications. Intent on separation from all defilement, the Pharisees applied to their table fellowship, in other words, who they're going to have a meal with, the laws prescribed for priests and the sacrifices, no wonder they are offended at Jesus' fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. Man, here is the ultimate insider. This guy is on the inside. He is Jewish. He is part of the chosen people of God. He's also a member of the ruling class. I mentioned the Sanhedrin. He is devout. He is moral. He strives for purity of life and purity of his people. He is law-keeping. He is a biblical professor. Man, this guy is disciplined. Dale Bruner says it's difficult to imagine a person more qualified to be a good human being or to enjoy a good relation with God or at least to ask the right questions than this man, Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a symbol of the best we've got. You see what I'm saying? He is a symbol of the best we got. You're going to send him into the, the Colosseum as a gladiator of morality. This guy's going to put up an incredible fight. This is who this man was. Impeccable background. Impeccable reputation. Keeper of the law. Zealous for people. Always thinking about purity. Keeping people on the outside. This guy is the ultimate insider. And so Jesus says to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. You. And he's thinking to himself, me? I am moving forward. I am religious. I keep 
the rules. You want me to start over? And listen, it would make a lot of sense if Jesus was having a conversation with a tax collector, with somebody with a reputation that you would not want to bring home for Thanksgiving or Christmas, if he's having a conversation with a crook, with a murderer, somebody on death row, if he's looking at somebody who has really messed up their life, the needy and the broken type, we would probably all be going, amen, amen. You need to be born again. You need to be born again. Look at your life. Look at your choices. Look at how you've lived. Jesus, he's so wise. This person needs to change their life. Be born again. Go back to the beginning. He's not talking to that person. He's talking to the ultimate gladiator of morality. This could be like Elon Musk. Stay with me on this. Elon Musk asking, what do I need to do to get into technology heaven? Well, Elon, thank you. You've done a lot of good things. We like your cars. You've got some good models coming out, which are a little bit cheaper. The battery thing is awesome. But you have to be born again. What's he thinking to himself? Man, I'm so close. Look what I've accomplished. I'm arguably the richest man in the world. Depends on the day. Depends on the stock. I am. I have made it. Elon to get into technology heaven, you have to be born again. What about President Biden? This is not a political statement. He says, what I need to do to get into political heaven. Well, Mr. President, you have to be born again. What about Kanye West? I'm trying to mix it up here. Itzhak Perlman. What do I have to do to get into music heaven? You have to be born again. You've got to start over. What about Bezos? What do I need to do to get into next day delivery heaven? <laughs> Be born again, Mr. Bezos. But look what, got to be born again. This is what Jesus is saying. The shock is that Jesus doesn't affirm the life and effort of Nicodemus. He simply says that unless you're born again, unless you're born of the water and the spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And if Nicodemus can't do it, if he can't achieve it through his life and his lifestyle, what hope do you and I have? Who can do it? Are you supposed to read this and feel absolutely empty? If Nicodemus can't achieve it, and I work with that same mentality, what hope do I have? When Jesus tells Nicodemus that he has to be born again, what he's saying is that every one of us is in the same position spiritually. You feel that? Doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter what background you've come from. Doesn't matter what actions these hands, mouth, what we've said and what we've thought. It does not matter in the kingdom of God. He goes, man, I want to see it. I want to be part of what you're doing because you've got to be born again. Start over. How come? Why are we all on an equal playing field? Well, it's because of the reality of sin. Think about this with me. Sin can be defined as looking to anything other than God to save you. Write that down. Sin can be defined as looking to anything other than God to save you. And you've really got two versions of this. You've got the independent, rebellious version that says, I don't want anybody to tell me what to do, whether it's my mom or dad, my boss, or this God who's supposed to be out there. I don't want to follow his rules. I don't want to read his book. I want him to live my way. I want independence. I want freedom. I want autonomy. I want happiness. And I wanted to define that for myself. You have that version of independence and deciding that I don't want anything to do with this God. But then you also have a, a version of it that looks very, very polite, kind, courteous, devout, and traditional. 
Somebody who says, I'm going to church, I'm going to follow the rules. But in reality, they are just as far because they have replaced something at the center and is ultimately themselves. And all of it is fear-based. All of it is wondering, can I do enough? Can I impress enough? Can I be obedient enough? Can I do enough to get his attention and your affection? Can I do it? And Jesus is essentially saying, there's no end to that. You're going to be looking forever. Lean into the person of Jesus and what he offers you. The new birth is for everyone. We all have to be reformed at the heart level, and no manner of performance is going to get you there. It is all grace or it's all nothing. Let me take you to this last part, how it actually happens. Look at verse 5. New heart, renovated interior, not an amendment, not a resolution, not simply a next step, but a new birth, how it happens. Verse 5. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And you do not understand these things? Transformation at the deepest level, deep in the interior of the life, is really reckoned and likened to a birth. Stop and think about your own birthday for a moment. Think about your birthday. I have never swapped notes with anybody about a birthday, the original one. Where we're like, man, what was it like for you? I mean, I was in this cocoon, it felt so warm, and then all of a sudden it was freezing. Do you remember that? And they're like, yeah, of course I remember that. That was crazy. And when that light came, my doctor was wearing this crazy mask, looks like a lot like you guys right now, wearing this mask thing. I didn't understand what was happening. And you ever swap notes like that? Of course not. You don't remember anything about the color of the room. You don't remember what your mother looked like when she held you for the first time. You don't remember the first scent or the smell or what you saw. You don't remember any of that because your birth had what? Nothing to do with you. Had nothing to do with you. You were a passive participant in the rival on this planet. Not your insight, not your strength, not your charisma, not your personality, all the things that get you ahead in life, none of that had to do with your birthday, did it? And Jesus says, when it comes to the new birth, the same principles apply. He says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. The new birth is a gift. You can't coerce it. You can't manipulate it. But guess what you can do? You can say, blow over here. Come and blow on my life. Come and change my life. I need the Spirit of God. I can't tether him. I can't rope him. Bring him into this space. Bring him into my spirit. I might not even know what I'm praying when I say that. But whatever you are, triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, come and blow through me my family, and this space. The wind blows wherever it pleases. See, in Jesus, I love this. Jesus tells Nicodemus, he goes, brother, you should have known this was always the case. You should have known this was how your God works. He references the Old Testament scriptures. He goes, you are a professor of Old Testament scripture. How are you asking me, what do you mean, Jesus? The Spirit is supposed to remake us? And he goes, aren't you Israel's teacher? You're supposed to know this stuff. I'll give you just one example from Ezekiel chapter 36. Read this slowly with me. I think we have it on the screen. I'll read it. Just read with me. 
I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will sprinkle clean water on you. It's the promise. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in, me, in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Nicodemus, are you surprised that I said unless somebody is born of the water and the spirit that they cannot see the kingdom of God? This is the way it's always been. You should know this. You should feel this. God is the change agent. God is the one who heals the human heart. D.A. Carson, the great scholar, he says, God is promising through the prophet Ezekiel six centuries before Jesus that a time is coming when there will be a transformative new beginning characterized by spectacular cleansing symbolized by water that washes away all impurities and idols and by the powerful gift of the Spirit that transforms the hearts of people. That is what is required if people are to see and enter the kingdom of God. Sounds good, but how? How, Jesus? Tell me how that happens. And Jesus gives us a reference to a snake being lifted up on a pole. This is his answer. It's from Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers 21, the people have been released from Egypt. They're walking through the wilderness. They've been out there for a while, and they begin to complain. They get bitter. They're mad because they want to go back and have a good meal in Egypt. They say, we'd rather have a good meal and be slaves than be out in the wilderness and have nothing. We don't trust you, Moses. We don't trust your God. And so they begin to complain against God. And God hears the complaining, and he sends something to punish them. And in Numbers chapter 21, it's described as fiery serpents. And those fiery serpents begin to make their way through the camp. And those snakes begin to bite people. And the text simply tells us that some of the people who were bit, they ended up dying. So many people began to die that they cried out, realizing that these fiery serpents are here as a punishment against our sin because of what we have done. And so they cried out to Moses, tell God to do something. Help relieve this thing that's going on in our camp. And so Moses intercedes. He prays to God and God says, Moses, make a serpent out of copper or bronze. Put it on a really large pole. Crazy story, right? Put the snake on a pole, put it way up in the sky, and anybody who sees that snake, if they have been bit, they'll live. And so Moses creates this copper snake. People are being bit by fiery serpents because of the malady of their own sin, because of the condition of their own heart. But there is a Savior in the camp, and it's this thing that's on a pole. It's been lifted up. And Jesus goes in the same way that that thing was lifted up, that when they saw it, that they were saved, he goes, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And when you see it, it'll change your life. It'll change your heart. That is the ingredient for the new birth. He goes, watch me be lifted up. Stare at me. See me bleed for you. See my life for your life. Go into the Old Testament scriptures and understand the narrative of the human heart, the human plight, and what's going on in your life. We are all avoiding God, but this God is coming for us. He says, in the same way that those people simply looked by faith and saw, look at Jesus and let him begin the work of inner renewal. Can I ask this question? How many of those people in the camp thought that was absolutely ridiculous? And there's snakes everywhere. You're going to build a snake 
You're going to put it on a pole, and you want me to simply look at it, and I've, I've been bit by a snake, then I'm going to be healed. Yup. Okay. What happened when they carried that doubt, pessimism, curiosity, questions, and they wondered? What happened if they had been bit by that snake? When they looked up at that copper bronze serpent on the pole, were they saved if they had questions? If they had wonder? If they were worried? If they carried all that pessimism? Were they saved? 100% they were. 100% they were. Because it had nothing to do with the pessimism of their gaze. It had to do with the promise of salvation. Look at the snake. It will save you. But I don't really want to. It saved them. It saved them. And that's what he's describing. Look to the gospel. Look to Jesus. He is the ingredient for profound renewal. What should happen in the human heart if we began to embrace that in this community? What would happen? Number one, you know what we do? We will worship. We would worship. You're telling me I don't have to do anything to earn his affection, to be brought into his family so that all of my life can be totally healed? You're telling me that even if I have pessimism, doubt, concern, and questions, that if I look to Jesus Christ for my life, my salvation, that I'll be fully renewed and healed? Yes. What? You mean that I don't have to have an additive-based spirituality where I'm trying to do things for this God my whole life? Nope. What is the reaction of your life and your soul when you hear that? It ought to be Worship, man. I want to know him. I want to talk to him. I want to praise him. Not in some sort of cheesy spirituality, but some like real thing coming out of my heart. I have been redeemed and renewed. Man, I want to praise him. Here in these seats, sure. But in my week to week, day to day, hour to hour, I want to give him glory and honor because he's worth it, number one. Number two, because we don't have to earn anything, guess what? We can put in a lot of effort. You feel the difference? Because I don't have to earn anything, I can now put in a lot of effort to make Jesus known and to know him. you got to work hard at Christianity because other things are warring for your affections. Work is okay within Christianity. Working hard at this thing of knowing and relationship. i got to work hard to know my wife. She has to work hard to know me. I love her and she loves me, but it takes work, does it not? Christianity is a relationship. You're free to work hard. And lastly, it ought to make you really kind. Really kind really gracious, really slow to speak. I have been born again. Didn't have anything to do with me. The Spirit blew where it would, and I'm a Christian because God came and got me. Amen? What would be different in your life if we lived as if that were true? Let's do it. Let's live as if it were true. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are gracious and you are faithful. The story doesn't fully make sense. And I know that those Israelites, when they thought about the story, when they received the instruction to stand, look, and gaze, that they said, Moses, are you serious? That's going to save us? And he said, just believe. Just look. So, Lord, we pray that you would give us faith to open our eyes, to see Jesus, to see him lifted up, and to know that there, upon the cross, 
and through that empty tomb are the ingredients for spiritual renewal. Renovation is what you do. You don't just self-help. You save. There's a tremendous difference. And we simply want to hold out our hands for those of us who have experienced the redemption offered in Jesus to say thank you. We want to worship. We want to work hard at making you known. Not to earn affection, but because we have it. And make us kind and humble. Lord Jesus, I pray that grace would break in upon many today. Spirit, blow where it will. In Jesus' great name we pray. Amen.